Hi, I'm Anna Radcliffe. I serve as the coordinator of Next Generation Engagement for the Reformed Church in America. I also serve as a church plant pastor of a small millennial congregation in downtown Grand Rapids. I'm joined by my colleague, Ruth Langkamp, who serves as the program specialist for NextGen. Friends, because this year changed so many things, for younger generations in particular, we wanted to start this podcast to create a space for connection. But we also wanted to unpack some of the greatest problems we're facing today as the Christian community. It's going to be a beautiful mess, but we can't wait to start this journey with you. Earl, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to be here with you. And it's a pleasure to be here with both of you. Thank you much for the invite. Yeah, thank you. So Ruth and I were kind of talking and um, we just have been wondering a little bit about people's stories. And so as we kind of start off this conversation today, would you be willing to share a little bit about your your identity as an advocate or what what has your advocacy journey looked like? Um, when you were first beginning, what propelled you into action? Uh, can I start with a question? Please. What do you mean by advocacy? Yeah, that's a good question. What would you say, Ruth? Yeah, I, for me, I think advocacy is really what has been something that has just been pressed on your heart for you to vocalize with your whole self and your whole being. Um, and that has motivated you from an internal reflection to an external movement of bringing others together to create a vision and a purpose. Mm. So really, simply put, what has moved for you from this internal thinking, I value this, I care about this, to I want to do something about this? Mm. It's helpful. It's very helpful. It's kind of an inward, outward. Yeah involved with that. And your question, Ruth, uh, your question, Anna, was what was the beginning of that for me? Yeah. Um, I, between high school and college, I took a couple of years off. And uh, in, during that time, I worked at a nuclear physics plant, just kind of making these big steering magnets. One of the guys that I worked with uh, named David Farrell was several years older than me. And David had had a, a pretty, um, a life very different than mine. David had been deeply into drugs. He had been in prison. Uh, in prison, he had done a lot of inner work and a lot of uh, reading about uh, black power uh, movements and Eldred Cleaver and H. Brown, a lot of people from that genre. And he came out with the basics of a reorganized life. And when I, I knew him when I was much younger and he was wild and out there, but at this plant, we worked together and we did lots and lots of talking together. And we formed a little group of us in there who did lots and lots of talking. Together. And we talked, um, as I recall those conversations, uh, this was back in the early 1970s, um, as I recall those conversations, um, we talked a lot about what happens to you in prison. We talked a lot about why so many black males were going to prison. We talked a lot about the uh, systemic reasons and, and forces that disassembled a lot of our communities. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about how the prison experience could become a grounds for helping to reshape um, some of the 
or heal and and propel to positive action what had been done to some of the particularly men there were only guys that worked in that part of the plant with us um, reshape some of their internal life and their sense of contribution to the community mm. and that's really where that started for me was um uh sort of just always wondering about the world, what's going to be my place in it, um, what is valuable to me. And I came out of my year, a year and a half of, of working in that environment um, with, a, with a commitment to criminal justice, with a commitment to, yes, criminal justice as a systemic environment, but also as a place to see if um some sort of regenerative roots could be mm. grown and nurtured in the people who wanted to have that happen. Mm. Um, so I, I went to a college, went to a college, majored in criminal justice, came out with a degree in the administration of criminal justice, uh, worked in police departments, uh, probation offices, prisons, halfway houses uh, over an 18-year period. Mm. And um felt free to try to find out how to do things that I would say the average um, peer of mine was not doing. They were doing the normal way you're supposed to do. I was doing that, but also looking underneath that for what what's likely to grab somebody to want to take another step or two or three. Mm. I, I would use judges in unusual ways to help with those discussions with people. I would use families in different kinds of ways. And um, uh, maybe I'm going off a little too much on that question, but that's for me where that started. Okay. Yeah. So when you, I mean, let's let's unpack that a little bit. You know, when we we ask, you know, this question to a lot of people, what propels you into action? I mean, it's clear that your interaction with your supervisor or your buddy at the it's just a, just a peer, just a regular guy who worked okay. there. here at a nuclear plant moved you into action, but then, I mean, this is kind of a an interesting component too to your story of being able to identify what motivates someone to take a next step. Mm-hmm. Um, h- how would you, I mean, can you think of something that might define some of that a little bit more from this kind of nebulous to a more identifiable, what were some of those things that, that come to mind for you? Um, I'd say something that I learned uh, much later after the time with David in that plant. Um, I, I learned it in my second, my third career <laughs> uh, regarding a, a notion called a theory of change. Mm-hmm. And, and a theory of change gets at, despite whatever your process is, whatever your project is, whatever your ministry is, what are the underlying things behind that that make you think this will really work? Mm-hmm. And then how do you deal with those underlying pieces? And I really became enamored with, um, this is a really technical term. It's called the simple theory of change. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it really only has three parts. The first part is um, you've got to get a read on the satisfaction with the status quo. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is if you don't have enough dissatisfied people with the status quo, you may have some wonderful conversations. You may have some heat and light forming, but you're not going to have enough impetus for change. Mm. 
So this satisfaction with the status quo. The second is you've got to have um, shared preferred future that is different from the status quo. Uh, if the future is not shared, or if it is not viewed as preferred to what is going on, you may have a lot of great conversation, you may have a lot of heat and light, uh, but you're not gonna have a basic element for, uh, for change to actually happen. Mm -hmm. So the first is you've gotta have a high level of dissatisfaction with the status quo. The second is you've gotta have um, a shared preferred future within that group that you're seeking to move, not within the leadership, but within the group, the body that has to make these adjustments. And the third element is pretty, I mean, those are complicated. They sound simple, but they're complicated. How do you get, how do you identify what enough is? And if you're less than that and you want to stay in the loop, how do you rev up the dissatisfaction or the sense of shared preferred? The third action is just how do you actually, what's your plan of action? How do you move in both of those dimensions so that you end up with a whole lot of energy to craft this future you want to craft? That's good. Um, so that's that's something that I that I think um, it helped me not get overwhelmed mm. by uh, the scale and the scope of stuff. Mm. And it helped me. It helped me say, okay, my first task is that I need to read. Is there enough dissatisfaction here? If there isn't, why keep giving to it? Unless it is, how do you rev up dissatisfaction? Yeah. And the way you rev it up might be with that group or maybe with, you don't pay so much attention to some people, you pay more attention to others and invite others who are dissatisfied. Into, however you do that, that becomes a focus. Yeah. To me, that's an energy-giving focus instead of, uh, instead of an energy-swallowing focus. Um, and then the second piece is just are these dissatisfied people, how are they working it out to come to a shared preferred future? Mm -hmm. and, and so forth. So for me, that that has been really um helpful. I also got very tired when I I would conclude that what we were really measuring were great events. Mm -hmm. Um Let's put all this energy into doing a wonderful event or worship service or uh, have a great dynamic speaker or, or what have you. Um, I, I would I got tired of saying of seeing how the measure of a great event, the outcome of a great event, is measured as we had a great event. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. um, um, so I got, I would say many, many years ago although not in the earliest parts of my time, uh, dissatisfied with, the, with any discussion about we're gonna put on a great event. Mm. Um, if this great event does not lead to, clearly lead to, not because we said it, but because the people who are involved are doing it, if it doesn't lead to an increase in dissatisfaction and a greater commitment to a shared preferred future, I, I don't want to do it because I'm not into having wonderful, beautiful, exciting events. I'm my my sense of myself is change agent. My sense of myself is not um, event planner. Okay, mm. for some people it is event planner, right? But we're talking about advocacy, 
And I think advocacy has to be much more than planning a great event and saying we did an advocating job. Uh, we should label that differently. Yeah, that's good. So that, those things have really helped me manage being really tired. Yeah. Yeah. What a great transition to, I'm just, I mean, you first started with this, um, so your journey started with a story. You were able to hear someone else's story and that impacted you personally, but also have this outside perspective of what does change look like? What is enduring change? And what's the process or the theory to help me understand advocacy in the lens of change? And I think that's just so beautiful because um, one of our goal here too is to unpack with you this concept of rest. Um, and for a lot of leaders, for a lot of advocates, um, and for my generation, we are so caught up on events, on we need to do this next thing. We need to post this. We need to share this. Mm. Um, and we get exhausted because that's really not change in the way that you have described for us. Um, and that leads us into fatigue. And I'm just I'm just blown away by um, this theory. There's really no question in there. Just unpacking yeah. a little bit more yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. Earl, I mean, can you talk about a time when you were just really, really tired? I mean, you talked about having three careers. <laughs> um, four. Yeah, four. four. And, and I would say you're not done. <laughs> so um, can you can you talk about a time when you were really tired and just... What does that look like? What does it look like to unpack some of some of the place that you are in when you're there? Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about a, a church that I was part of for 20, 25 years. Um, where I also was a staff person. I was also an elder there. Uh, so I had a, a leadership role in what was going on. Um, the church uh, was a was a multiracial church, and I think like a lot of multiracial things, we struggle with a, with the demographic of race versus understanding that to the demographic of culture. We were a multiracial church that was struggling to be: are we monocultural or are we multicultural? Mm -hmm. and, and this church did a lot of real work towards the struggle to be multicultural. But we had, it came at a cost in a lot of regards. Um, this one event that, that occurred was the selection of a youth pastor. And uh, the three finalists, one was a, a white male, one was a white female, and one was a black male. Um, and uh, I would say what ended up happening was the whole church was really interested and concerned for the youth. They, I think everybody wanted to make a good decision for the youth. But our cultures that were native to ourselves was what was behind the nature of that massive church fight. Mm -hmm. It was very brutal, very wounding. People left the church over it. It was, a, it was a very ripping piece to go through, and it was deeply debilitating. It was deeply debilitating. So we had lots of group meetings and we brought in outside consultants to try to help us go through this stuff. But what sort of emerged for me out of this was 
part of the problem was that we were a church. And what that meant was we were highly committed to spiritual language. Mm-hmm. We said things like, you know, God is leading us in this way. All right. We were saying things like, um, I read in Bible or we prayed about and we did all those good Christian things and we used those things. I mean, all of us, me included, use those things to buttress our own particular perspectives. Mm. And uh, I, I really, I remember that I started to say, can we have this discussion without using spiritual language? Wow. Can we have this discussion without talking about what we heard from God, without talking about how we prayed and this is what we felt like we got? Can we have this discussion, us talking with each other? Um, because there was a politic that emerged that was embedded in the, in the spiritual language use. Who wants to go up against? <laughs> who yeah. wants to go up against somebody who said the Lord said this to me, or this is what I got out of God's word? Who wants to go up against that? Who wants to go up against? You know, Pastor says. You know, who wants to go up against that language? Yeah. If you do, you feel guilty, mm-hmm. uh, and you. Some of us will back off. Some of us will shift our language around. Some of us will. Um, it became debilitating for me. It became debilitating directly, and I think for our church, it was not helpful to get us out of it because we were multiracial, working on multiculture, and we were. And also, I mean, beyond that, we were all trying to get at the truth. What was the best thing for for the teens in our church? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it was we were going at this as limited human beings. Period. Um, and, and I felt like our use of spiritual language was really getting in the way of us talking as sisters and brothers in Christ together mm-hmm. to understand what our individual and group drives were. Yeah. Um, and of course, it, that, I don't think that went very far. It went someplace, but it didn't go very far because we are a church and we're all brought up to use spiritual language and we're all brought up to be suspicious of um, anything that smacks of we're putting God to the side. I was not advocating putting God to the side. I was saying the language we are using, the way we use the language is divisive. So let's, in effect, make up another language yeah. uh, so that we go through it. The end, it was, that was a really, um, the issue got resolved, but what ended up happening is that um, the supporters of at least one of the candidates was not chosen. They did another human thing, another human thing. They felt, you know, the church made a mistake. Mm-hmm. The majority was wrong. Um, they felt the majority did not hear right from God. Mm-hmm. Um, they felt uh, so, so opposition to this person who was our youth pastor kept popping up here and there and popping up in resistance. And some of us adults were feeding it and some of the teens were were feeding it. And but there was a groundswell of people who supported him, but the minority groups that were in there who didn't appreciate that kept popping up like that. And I, I think that's a problem 
that kind of thing is a problem the church faces. I think our denomination faces that kind of thing all the time. And we, we couch really human matters too much with spiritual language, mm. I feel. And the spiritual language becomes a tool for shutting down opposition. Mm. I think it has to be that way. I don't think it has to be that way. But I think it tends to be that way. Mm. Mm. That's really good. I mean, I just am thinking about the amount of people that we have talked to who are millennial. I mean, millennial and Gen Z, I think when you talk about advocacy work in the church, what you just named, um, you know, the language that you did not use, but I I will name it as the language that I hear is it's, it's spiritual abuse. Um, it's it's invoking the name of God to I, I think you were the one that said to kind of buttress your your experience or your belief. Mm-hmm. And um that's deeply tiring. It's deeply fatiguing. Um but it also I think aches of of confusion, right? I mean, you named that this was something you went to therapy with. Um Earl, I'm curious if part of this process was just how do you discern then what God is actually saying when you go through something like this? How do you put your finger on, you know, I I just saw the vying of political opinion in the name of God. Mm. You know, I I think we see this similarly in other arenas of, of the American society, but let's just use this example, you know, for you, how did you unpack that? You you asked a really heavy question. <laughs> and you, um, That's what we do here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Asking too many heavy questions is also training. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, think, I think another way to put it is um, in the midst of all this fatigue, how were you able to step aside and rest yeah. Yeah. Um, so that you could really discern um, for yourself, what you are seeing and experiencing. Um, I know, you know, Anna and I have unpacked this a little bit more, is that the work and the design of rest is to reorient ourselves to God, mm-hmm. is to allow mm-hmm. us to pause and really reflect internally what God is saying to us and how it's moving us. And I mean, when you watch a kid nap and they wake up from their nap, the amount of energy and just joy and exuberance they have is, it's unlike anything you will ever experience. And I think that is the design of rest for us. Um, So in the midst of all this fatigue and chaos, um, how were you able to step aside and just lean into this, you know, God-given design of rest for you. I want to share at two levels with that. Uh, you used the word unpacking before, but I, I want to unpack that a little bit to talk about sort of a, a higher level view about that and then some specific things that I try to do. I think at a higher level is, um, to put it in a math statement, infinite does not equal finite. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you buy that, and I fully buy that, I believe we are always going to fall short of God's what God wills because God is infinite and we are finite. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there is any way of coming out of logic, of coming out of frustrations, and coming out of a lot of things with this, for the finite to even declare they fully understand the will of God. There's always got to be some margin of error. And for that, I fall back into a few scriptures. One is where Jesus is saying the spirit blows where it wills. Uh, you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going, but you know when it's passing you. Mm. Um, to me, that says that there is a spirit. There is you. And of all the things that the spirit can be doing, you get as much of it. And the spirit's right in front of you. You don't get where it came from. You don't get where it's going. You don't. You have a finite view of this infinite piece. Another piece from Paul, um, he speaks about, uh, he's talking about truth, and he's saying now it's like we see through a glass or a mirror darkly, or as though it's broken and the image is frayed and shattered. Then, meaning the future, mm -hmm. the God's future, the next world kind of thing, we'll see it face to face, we'll see it clearly. Um, so what Paul is sort of saying there is that in our existence, the finite cannot fully comprehend the infinite. The finite comprehends broken, blurry images of God's words. Another one that I think about sometimes is comes out of, um, I think it's out of 1 John, where uh, the writer... The writer writes that uh, what we shall be has not yet been made known. Mm -hmm. But in the end times, we will be like him and we will see him for what he is, mm -hmm. which is a different way of saying the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. So for me, mm -hmm. I, I start with, I, in terms of God's will, I'm going to get some percentage of it. I got to give myself a margin of error. I got to give you a margin of error. I got to give that you got some of it is true. Mm -hmm. I got to give that some of it is not true. It's mm -hmm. because not because of sin, but because sin may be involved with it. But it's because we are limited. It's because mm -hmm. we are created. It's because we were not created to be God. We were created to be a creature. Mm. And um, so for me, in the big picture way, in terms of how I find rest, I find rest in not having to um, believe I need to know 100% of the truth or 90% of the truth. Mm. But I need to know I'm going to give my best shot. And I need to listen to people who are different than me, particularly people that I think are going to give it their best shot. Mm and see what do I get from that. I, I don't like to be in rooms with people who just think like me. Mm. I, I want to be in rooms where there is uh, diversity and dissonance that comes from the diversity, but where there is a desire for equity. Mm. Um, and uh, if I can get into that, I feel like I will know more about than I will if I'm with myself or if I'm with people who think about me. Mm -hmm. I find a lot of rest in that. Um, I don't have to get it 100%. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's a lot of people who will have big problems with that. They will emphasize different scriptures than I, that I referenced. 
I will bring up specific scriptures that they say this scripture proves that, just like I kind of said about the scriptures I raised. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that's okay. They're going to do, we're, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. All right. We're Christians. We were brought up, acculturated, socialized, all that in that kind of way. Um, but I think a big piece, I'm getting really repetitive here. Sorry about that. But a big piece is we are finite. We cannot get 100% of what the infinite is. And if it truly is infinite, we can't rate what percentage of it we have. Right. Okay. I think there's problems with that. Okay. So what do I do to rest? I rest. <laughs> I I like reading. Um, I'll, I will read a novel. I will read. Uh, I will. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily like science fiction, but I'll read sort of science history. Um, one of the things that I could have answered after I talked about my uh, my first advocacy pieces and when I went to college to major um, in criminal justice, my favorite classes were not classes in criminal justice. My favorite classes was English history. I mean, English like English classes mm. where we could read books that talked about human interactions and human motivations, especially. Why, why did this character do this like that and this that and the other? What was the writer thinking when she or he was doing XYZ, crafting the storyline like this? What if they crafted it like that? I think I personally got more rest and preparation by, by reading fiction like that. Yeah. Um, I think another thing I do is I, I like uh, Netflix. I like YouTube. And if I'm on YouTube, I don't really care what the topic is. I'm going to just... <laughs> oh, this interesting chain. Let's follow this chain out. Let's follow this chain out. That could lead you in very fun directions. Oh, say, say again? That could lead you in very fun directions. I Not, not just, on yes. No, I'm just saying, I watched yeah. a whole hour of just cats taking that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the funny thing about that is when you when you open your mind out um, away from the issue you're advocating or away from the nature of your job mm. and let these other in things come into your head almost beyond your volition, beyond your choice. Mm. Things start happening where you extract something from this and you plop it into what you are doing. Mm. Oh, what's what's up with that? I mean, I never thought of that before. How how does this work? You run into opposition probably because probably not many other people have thought of it before either. You know, where are you coming from? Well, you can't tell them I came from this YouTube video or I saw or or TED Talk stuff mm -hmm. um, or or whatever wherever you go. But I think there's a place of creativity that that stuff happens that is refreshing to you. Mm -hmm. But also, it's um, in ways maybe beyond your intention, informative on the work that you're doing. Yeah. I think another thing that I do, I, I love being with my kids. I love being with my wife. I love being with my grandkids. Um, I love figuring out, you know, I'm a boomer. My grandkids are Gen Z. Mm -hmm. um, we, we play games over our generational differences to just <laughs> explore stuff about how we're similar and how we aren't. And uh, I, 
I love, I love listening to them. I love meeting their friends and hearing from their friends. Uh, you know, you got to watch that. This old intrusive grandpa is uh, intruding on somebody's life. You got to watch that stuff. But, um, <laughs> my grandpa but it's a, when I bring my friends over because it's just <laughs> a whole new playing field of people to ask questions and yes, yeah, the life. Yes. I think it's dangerous when you orient your life around one thing, but including your advocacy, your ministry, or whatever. I, I think um, something that gives me rest, uh, I think it was Augustine who said something like, um, pray as though it is totally dependent on God, act as though God is totally dependent on you. Um, it's a, it's a, apparently something that is two diametrically opposed things that should cancel each other out, but live inside the tension of that, mm-hmm. you know, live inside the tension for that. Recognize that you are an asset mm-hmm. to God in the work. We know our, going back to religious language, we are nothing. God is everything. Mm-hmm. So that I say, keep in mind that you are an asset of God at work in the world. Cherish that asset. Mm. Nourish that asset. Um, when you start feeling like this, do whatever you need to do to get back up. Because if um, this is not a statement at all that God is limited, just like I don't think Augustine was talking that God is limited by saying God is dependent on, on us to do things. But if you, Anna or Ruth, if you were not there, God could not do your jobs the way God is doing your jobs through you. It would be different. It would be different in kind, in quality, in emotion, in passion, in in emphasis. It would be different. We are not cookie cutters. There's a big part of us that is. The spirit is the spirit. But what you bring to it is unique. It is particular. It is special. And... um, God is, if God is using us, he's using you in, in the way that you are fitted to be used. And I find that, um, I find that refreshing because it tells me several things. One, it tells me that I'm not a cog in the wheel. Another thing that it tells me is that if I can change, the external can change. Mm. Another thing that it tells me is if I don't take care of myself as an asset, um, some kingdom work is going to be great in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to stay alive. We have to stay alive to whatever it is that we are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you know Howard Thurman, who was uh, who was a uh, he was he's black, he was Christian, he was everything. <laughs> he was an author, he was a preacher, he was a dean of a chapel, he was a mentor of people across the world. He, he was a friend of, he was a mentor of Martin Luther King Jr. He was a friend of Mahatma Gandhi. He said his, his understanding of calling is to discover what makes you most alive and go out and do that. Because what God's world needs most are people who are alive. Mm. Um, if you're doing your advocacy, don't, don't let it wear you out. If you're finding yourself and we're going to find ourselves, we're finite, we're going to find ourselves, you know, 
losing uh, energy, maybe losing interest. Mm. That's okay. Mm. You know, that's okay. Mm. What will bring you rest, restoration? What will make you feel more alive? Even if it's changing your area, mm. you are the asset. The issues are always going to be here. You are the asset. What will make you feel more alive? And go out and do that. Mm, very good. Good permission giving. Holy smokes. <laughs> so good. Oh, I... Howard Thurman is one that I used to read. I read him for 20, 25 years. I had one of his, a guy that he wished was his son as a professor of mine in college. Wow. Um, and I got to know Thurman a little bit about that. I read Thurman's books for years. I used to buy, go to used bookstores and buy five or ten copies and give them away to people. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus and the Disinherited was one of those. Mm, I actually read that one. Okay, okay. You know, it's a <laughs> radical revolutionary view of yes. a way of thinking about Jesus. Uh, any of his books, I, I recommend them. Mm, mm, thank you. Yeah, that was a gift. Yeah, I'm just, I think the most significant um, I mean, everything you've said has been drinking from a fire hose. But um, for us right now, you know, we're, we've been on this journey of COVID for three plus years and it's going to continue. And it's been challenging for many people. And for you who, as an advocate, as someone who is finding rest and ways to stay alive, um, in what ways have you noticed people's spiritual lives has been affected by this experience, this um, disease of both mind and body? Um, and then within that, what are some spiritual rhythms that you might suggest to help combat some of the anxiety that has prevailed throughout this challenging season for many of us? I think part of what makes your podcast much different from others that I've seen is you give great freedom to go in a variety of directions on very deep topics. <laughs> That's the goal. Um, the conversation, hopefully. We have we have uh, an elderly couple who are pretty good friends of my family, have been for probably 30 or more years. Um, both are Christians. Uh, she's a healthcare professional, retired both retired, um, very active in the life of their church, deeply God-believing, deeply spiritual people, fully vaccinated. Uh, they both left the vacation early, uh, feeling awful. Both of them have COVID, uh, not hospitalized and is in ICU. I, I think they probably felt that they had taken all sorts of precautions. Mm. I think they felt, I don't know how they felt about their spirituality, but I, I imagine that it was a deep spiritual challenge mm -hmm. as well as a physical challenge, mm. as well as a social challenge for them when they got it. Certainly relational challenge with each other. They didn't let her go into the emergency room with her husband, even though she had COVID. Um, no, you can't come in because the hospital can't be a super spreader. Mm. That's my reality is knowing of people who have gotten sick. Mm. 
and so forth went right from it. Hmm. The other reality of it is, you know, I have family. I have family who have had COVID, but I also have family who have refused to take vaccine. Um, and I suppose it could be at the point that if we let that, that could, that could really damage our family relationships because it's not merely a personal thing, right? It's, it's a political thing. It's a cultural thing. There's battles over public health versus personal liberties uh, that are going on here. Um, I, I have, I, I don't know that where we are as a country, where we are politically, where we are uh, in any of those ways, I, I don't know that we can find peace with each other. Mm. And that there's just two totally different, diametrically opposed views. There's a group that, that seems to discount science and, um, and a group that doesn't. I think another part of the problem, this is one that I've been talking about yesterday at church, I talked about this. Um, I think that uh, this is not an original thought. This is something that I read and thought about. There's not that many of us who are old enough to remember when, when the country and the world dealt with polio and smallpox and mumps and measles. We don't have a memory of how devastating those things were to us collectively. Um, consequently, I mean, we won those battles with those things because of vaccines. The vaccines have been so successful that we don't have a significant number of the population with a collective memory about what it is to not have a vaccinated society and to be ravaged by those things. And I think that lack of a collective memory is part of our problem too. Mm. We don't know enough people, enough families that have suffered because of this. Right. Um, so we can afford to say stuff like, oh, that's not really COVID. They had some form of the flu or we'll just treat it like the flu. Such folks don't have a collective memory of what it is to be ravaged by this stuff. Mm. Um, how do you get a collective memory? You just have to get old. You have to build up a population of elderly people, and you have to respect them in a way that's different than we do. Mm -hmm. A couple of weekends ago, I was, um, I was at a church function, and, uh, and a person was talking about Liberia, Ruth, was talking about Liberia and how Liberians were treating her. She was like 56, 57. And they were calling her mama. They were calling her grandma. They were calling her this. Oh, please have a seat here. What can I get you? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? There was a very, very different cultural view of how you honor being elderly. Very, very different. Yes. Here, you know, we have a lieutenant governor who says it would be a good thing for elderly people to choose to die off rather than have our economy stop. Uh, because of COVID. Um, here, we are, uh, we elderly are, um, we're not merely statistics, but um, when this disease was mostly hitting us, it was okay to have my state just passed the 50% mark of fully vaccinated people, 
just past it. You know, that, that means half of us aren't there. Mm-hmm. No what they're, they're not there. You know, so to me, I feel like I'm doing a rant right now. I don't, I don't want to do a rant. I appreciate where you're going, especially with the collective memory. I think that you're going right back to the work of advocacy, the importance of storytelling um, as a way for us to really think about a theory of change. You're going right back to that. And I I think full circle, I'm following. Um, One of the Facebook groups that I'm in was having a big debate over this. And I, I said, something like what I just said about the lack of collective memory. It just said, you know, it's okay if you don't want to get a vaccine. What I'd ask you to do first, though, read up on what it was like when polio was rampant. Mm-hmm. Read it up on what it was like when smallpox was rampant. Mm-hmm. Read up on what it was like. You couldn't go to kindergarten unless you were vaccinated against monks, measles, and chickenpox. You couldn't go to kindergarten. And why that was okay back then, and then make your decision because you've got a you've got a link to what memory is out there. Most of it is not in human stories anymore. Most of it is in written documentation, but it's all accessible in the internet. It's all accessible there. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, your question is a deeply frustrating one, but you just you you've got to. Number one, you've got to know, you've got to take support from people who think like you do. Mm, yes. You've got to understand what a former colleague of ours, Anna, used to say, the coalition of the willing. Mm. You, you've got to draw, you've got to know who they are, and you've got to draw strength from that. But then you also have to engage people who don't think like you do. And, um, and, I want to, and you, you've got to hear them out, mm-hmm. because a lot of them have real reasons for what they they believe, their point of view. Um, us, us telling them that you're wrong, us telling them, don't you care? Well, I, I've had people say, yes, I do care. That's why we're not going to subject ourselves to that poison, mm-hmm. <laughs> that poison meaning the vaccine. People are going to have their stuff, right? So I don't know. I think you've got to know the coalition of the willing. You've got to build that. But you've also got to um, recognize that we're all finite and mm. go to people who think differently than you yeah. and see if you can build human grounds with them. Mm. Um, I did with one guy who was totally, totally, totally an anti-vaxxer. And we live a few doors down from each other and we're having this debate and really clear. It was a debate. It's really clear. We're not going anyplace. <laughs> and, and I'm trying to figure, is there a common ground someplace that we could start from? So I said to him, uh, what do you think it would be like if politicians in the media stayed out of this entirely and left healthcare maintenance to healthcare professionals? What would that world be like? Right. I agree with that point entirely. The problem is in these politicians passing their stuff and the media passing. <laughs> we meant two different types of politicians and two different types of media, but we found common ground that if they were out of the picture and let healthcare be healthcare, yeah. It, it could, all I'm saying is stay in it with folks mm. and, and look for common ground. Sometimes you can't always. Sometimes you have to stay, take your stand on where you're at, right? That's part of the heart of advocacy. 
is to bring around a desired change that leads to a shared preferred future. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you can't get there. So the low hanging, the lower hanging fruit is common ground. How do you find the lower hanging fruit? It may take a lot out of you. But then you go back into the rest stuff. <laughs> we just covered so much ground. I just want to say, We're Earl, bringing you back. Yeah, we are part two, three, four. You can be a regular feature. Rest with resting with Earl. Um, Earl, thank you so much for being here. We are so grateful that you took the time to invest in in rest with us and to talk about mm. all the of all the places that we went and we talked about leadership. We talked about advocacy. Um, so just thank you so much. Um, we are so grateful. It's a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. This has been restful because, you know, this stuff is stirs up inside of you and how do you share that? What do you do with it? Well, yeah. this turned out to be, this turned out you advocated for me to find rest in, in talking, having this conversation with both of you. So thank you for that. Thank you.